Welcome to this pre-recorded meeting for Calvary Church here in Brighton for the 19th of July 2020. We are still just emerging from the coronavirus lockdown and there's a lot to sort out before we can meet together in the way that we used to. We're a church of people who live in the area of Brighton, it's on the south coast of England. We're believers in Jesus Christ. We are a church of uh, 80 or so of us meeting together on Sunday mornings in normal times. We are just ordinary people from different nations and backgrounds, but we believe that God has brought us together uh, through faith in Jesus Christ to love him and to serve him. And we're going to do our best to express that in the way that we uh, conduct this time this morning. My name's Philip Wells. I'm one of the team of elders here at Calvary, and I'll be leading this morning. And uh, other notices have no doubt been circulated by email and so on. So a particular welcome to you if you just dropped in. We are going to do the things that Christians normally do when they meet together. We're going to sing and pray and read the Bible and have a talk on the Bible as it applies to us. And I'm just going to try and put the plan up on the up on the screen behind my head, or slightly in front of my head, in fact. This morning we're continuing a new series of studies and meditations based on a book in the New Testament. It's called The Letter to the Hebrews. Um, we just call it Hebrews usually, but more of that later. So uh, let's open with a prayer. Our Lord in heaven, Wherever we may be this morning, whoever we may be, may we be found drawing near to you, and will you draw near to us. May we be found in living contact with you, the living God, by your word and by your spirit. We ask it in the name of Jesus Christ, our Saviour. Amen. What? Christians believe is summarised by one of the first Christian leaders, uh, Paul, St Paul, uh, as he's called. He says it can be summarised like this. Now, brothers, I want to remind you of the gospel I preached to you, which you received and on which you took your stand. For I received I'm sorry, for what I received I passed on to you as of first importance, that Christ died for our sins, according to the Scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day, according to the Scriptures, and that he appeared to Peter, then to the Twelve, and after that he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers at the same time. And so it's important for us to realise the essential nature of Christianity. It's not basically about a culture of behaviour patterns, saying a form of words at certain times in the week, um, or anything like that. Although being a Christian will radically uh, change the nature of a person's behaviour. It's not basically about a set of personal experiences whether they're experiences of ecstasy or guilt or joy, that's not fundamentally what it is. Although being a Christian 
brings a whole set of truths and relationships which are bound to elicit all sorts of powerful emotional responses. It is not basically about the human quest to reach out God, to God, to get ourselves tuned into God, uh, let alone to earn our salvation before God. It's not actually about us at all. It is at root about a historical person, Jesus of Nazareth. Christianity is founded upon who he is and what he has done. In other words, his person and his work. And it is about how he figures in the plan of God our maker for his world, for his purposes, uh, first of all for that family upon which he lighted way back in uh, the time of Abraham, but also going on from that family to the whole world, uh, to all nations. And the writer to the Hebrews makes a point of directing his reader's attention to this focus on the person and work of Jesus. He says, Let us fix our eyes upon Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy before him endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of God. Consider him. So that's our theme or title. Today we will be considering him. But in order to do so, let's uh, stand a little bit further back, as uh, the writer of the Hebrews does, and uh, we'll hear an ancient psalm, uh, Psalm 8, and Rosemary's going to read this to us. Thank you, Rosemary. Psalm 8. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You have set your glory above the heavens. From the lips of children and infants you have ordained praise because of your enemies to silence the foe and the avenger. When I consider your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, what is man that you are mindful of him, the son of man that you care for him? You made him a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honour. You made him ruler over the works of your hands. You put everything under his feet, all flocks and herds and the beasts of the field, the birds of the air and the fish of the sea, all that swim the paths of the seas. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. Now having heard the psalm read to us, let's try to sing it. Uh, this is the version we've tried before. Uh, the words are Scottish, the tune seems rather Scottish. Uh, we sang it the other day, uh, but this is a, a remix of the musical arrangement. You remember that there's one verse uh, free, um, one verse all the way through without words, just so that you can try and get the hang of the tune. So we're going to sing uh, in the book number eight, Psalm number eight.
psalm is full of praise. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. So let us uh, pray a prayer of praise to this God. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. We bow before you in your glory and majesty. How fathomless are your works, how wonderful are your ways. We can't grasp them, we only see a little bit and sometimes we get that out of kilter. But we praise you in your glory and majesty, in your power and wisdom. How great you are, O oh God. We praise you as our creator, we praise you for your moral and ethical purity. We praise you for the depths of your wisdom. Uh, you are so clever, so inventive, so creative, so deep. We come to you as the creatures that you have made, the human beings that you have made. And we too have our breath taken away when we think, what is, what is the son of man that you care for him? What is man that you are mindful of him? We are amazed that you should care for us let alone make us in such an exalted way and put us in such a, an exalted position that we are, as it were, your representatives in this creation, 
you've made us rulers over it and we bow before you we confess to you that we've completely messed up uh, as a race uh, as a nation as individuals in this whole matter of living and ruling in this world for you forgive us when we have used the resources that you've given us for um, purposes which have been selfish or uh, impure uh, or just uh, lustful uh, and um, completely wrong. Please forgive our sins and grant us forgiveness through the Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you for him and pray that we may be able this morning to consider him and have a larger view of him so that whatever else we've been thinking about through the week it would fall into its proper subservient place under a contemplation of you, uh, the, our Redeemer, Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. We pray for our world uh, as it is, with the glory and responsibility of being made as we are, and yet with the catalogue of failure and sadness uh, because of our sin. Please look with mercy upon our world in all its problems with its wars and suffering and particularly this virus which continues to bring people's lives to a premature end. Please Lord have mercy on our world and grant in particular that people would heed the wake-up call of this virus and turn towards you. We pray for our city that our city may have your good hand. We know that we don't deserve your good hand but we ask you to take notice of our city with its tens of thousands of people who don't know their right hand from their left, spiritually speaking. Please Lord, in all the gifts that you've given to our city of creativity and uh, vivacity and uh, liveliness, will you please grant the humility of repentance and turning towards you in, in the true meaning of life. We pray for our own selves. Help us this day to turn towards you. We cast upon you the burdens of anxiety and care that we have and we look to you that uh, your promises would be made true to us, that you guide us and carry us and go before us and protect us and bring us all the way home. May we find that as individuals and as a church too. So hear our prayers. We just pause to add whatever prayer might be in our hearts this morning personally to you. And we pray our prayers in Jesus' name. Amen. The work of Jesus is U-shaped. The letter U goes down and then up again. And this is true of Jesus and his career, if we could call it that. He came down from heaven. He went down very low into death and was raised up very high in his resurrection and in his ascension and in his enthronement. And here is a short reading from Philippians chapter 2, verses 1 to 11 
scripture describe that? Uh, this is Paul. First of all, he says to his listeners that this career involves a mindset and Christians are supposed to take on that mindset. So he says, if you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, any comfort from his love, any fellowship in the spirit, if any tenderness and compassion, then make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and purpose. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility consider others better than yourselves. Each of you should look not only to your own interests, but also to the interests of others. Your mindset, your attitude, should be the same as that of Christ Jesus, who, being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant, and being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Amen. Philippians chapter 2 verses 1 to 11. You came from heaven to earth to show the way, from the earth to the cross my debt to pay, from the cross to the grave, from the grave to the sky. Lord, I lift your name on high. That's song number 314, which we're going to sing now. Lord, I lift your name on high. Lord, I lift your name on high Lord, I love to sing your praises I'm so glad you're in So glad you came to save us. You came from heaven to earth to show the way from the earth to the cross. I dare to pay from the cross to the grave, from the grave to the sky. you came to save us. You came from heaven to earth to show the way from the earth to the cross. My death 
And now we're going to have read to us the first chapter of Hebrews going on into the second chapter. It's what we had before. No harm in hearing it again. So this is Ray speaking. Thank you, Ray. And I've just added a couple of extra verses on at the end. The reading is Hebrews chapter 1, verse 1, through to chapter 2, verse 5. In the past, God spoke to our forefathers through the prophets at many times and in various ways. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things, and through whom he made the universe. The Son is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being, sustaining all things by his powerful word. After he had provided purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty in heaven, so that he became as much superior to the angels as the name he has inherited is superior to theirs. For to which of the angels did God ever say, You are my son, today I have become your father. Or again, I will be his father, and he will be my son. And again, when God brings his firstborn into the world, he says, Let all God's angels worship him. In speaking of the angels, he says, He makes his angels winds, his servants flames of fire. But about the sun, he says, Your throne, O God, will last for ever and ever, and righteousness will be the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore God, your God, has set you above your companions by anointing you with the oil of joy. He also says, In the beginning, O Lord, you laid the foundations of the earth, and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you remain. They will all wear out like a garment. You will roll them up like a robe. Like a garment they will be changed. But you remain the same, and your years will never end. To which of the angels did God ever say, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool? your feet. Are not all angels ministering spirits sent to serve those who will inherit salvation? We must pay more careful attention, therefore, to what we have heard, so that we do not drift away. For if the message spoken by angels was binding, and every violation and disobedience received its just punishment, how shall we escape? if we ignore such a great salvation. This salvation, which was first announced by the Lord, was confirmed to us by those who heard him. God also testified to it by signs, wonders, and various miracles, and gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to his will. It is not to angels that he has subjected the world to come, about which we are speaking. But there is a place where someone has testified, What is man that you are mindful of him, the son of man that you care for him? You made him a little lower than the angels. You crowned him with glory and honour and put everything under his feet. In putting everything under him, God left nothing that is not subject to him. 
Yet at present we do not see everything subject to him. But we see Jesus, who was made a little lower than the angels, now crowned with glory and honour, because he suffered death, so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. The head that once was crowned with thorns is crowned with glory now. A royal diadem adorns the mighty victor's brow. Diadem is a crown, and that's what we're going to sing. It's number 498. The head that once was crowned with thorns is crowned with glory now. sung about the glory of Jesus and the career of Jesus who went down and came up in this U-shaped career and now we're going to think about him, we're going to consider him but before we do so let's pray.
Lord, thank you for these readings. Thank you for these thoughts about you. They engage our hearts and minds in your praise. Thank you for the one of whom they speak, Jesus our Saviour. And as we bow before his utter greatness, we confess our sins and our rebellion, but we pray that over and above these things, you would open our eyes to see Jesus, that we might fix our eyes upon him, that we might consider him and learn from him and be drawn into him and be changed into his likeness. So help us in our thinking and speaking just now, for Jesus' sake. Amen. So we've prayed and read, and now we're going to think about uh, this letter to the Hebrews. It says, consider him. Think about Jesus. And that's what we're going to do uh, in these next few minutes. So I'd like us, first of all, there's a human figure, um, to consider some objections to Jesus. Number one, objection. He's just human. What sort of a saviour is that? Surely we need something more than someone who's just human. That must be something that rules him out as a saviour. Number two, he suffered. He suffered. He suffered a terrible and shameful death. How can this sort of disgrace be appropriate for a saviour? Surely that disqualifies him. And number three, if you think of all the promises in the Bible about uh, the reign of peace and the reign of Messiah, um, nothing seems to have changed. What's happened to these promises of recreation and of worldwide peace and, and so on and so on? Nothing much seems to have changed. Surely that rules him out. And I'm just uh, stopped to say when, when we take human, uh, it means you could have taken his photograph. Wouldn't have been much help though. Um, he's a sort of human being who interacted in a genuine way. He asked questions. He needed food. He got tired. Now there's a deep mystery here, but uh, we won't short search. So we won't solve the mystery by saying he wasn't human. He was truly human. So those are some objections, and uh, we're going to think about those towards the end. But they'll set us off. So just to recap some things about the letter, it was written to professing Christians. That's to say, Christians who said they people who said they were Christians. Uh, he doesn't stop to prove the things that they had already accepted. So if you're watching this as somebody who has a lot of objections to Christianity, you probably won't find them ad directly addressed. But what he is writing to these Christians to remind them of the power and implication of the things that they had already believed. There, uh, his readers rather, were from a Jewish background. So a lot of this is argumentation to do with Jewish expectation. Uh, we're told that the readers had believed in Jesus back in the early days, chapter 10, verse 32. We're told they had suffered for their faith, so they were serious believers. They'd suffered insult and persecution. But as time went on, they were somehow losing their way, uh, maybe going back to the synagogue and the temple. And so there are words used here about drift and becoming lazy and sluggish. And uh, there's a relevance of this uh, constantly. Here in the UK, we know of people who, in some sense, used to be Christians and places of worship that used to be churches and maybe 
carpet warehouses now or blocks of flats. So the letter to the Hebrews contains promises and it also contains warnings. Dick Lucas's helpful remark, the mark of the elect is that they believe the promises and heed the warnings and tremble at his word. And the relevance to this is to keep us walking with the Lord in a, a daily way, uh, with a daily urgency. Um, and that's the only way to live the Christian life, to trust and obey. There's no other way to be happy in Jesus, but daily, moment by moment, to be trusting and obeying. And uh, just to recap so far, in the first four verses he blasts off, showing that Jesus the Son is at the epicentre of all things divine, creation, the final destiny of the universe, which is technically called eschatology, the expression and revelation of God, God's upholding of all things, that's called providence, and redemption, the buying back of sinners for the Saviour. And then in the next section, which we looked at uh, last week, he draws a clear line between angels and the sun. They're two different things, chalk and cheese. The angels are created. They are worshippers, not to be worshipped. They are messengers, but they are not the sender of the message. They are servants in the household, but not bona fide members of the household. Servants, not not the son. Although they are called sons in a secondary sense, they are not the son, the firstborn. Clear difference. And uh, one other thing about angels, they don't do family. Uh, unlike uh, um, their, uh, sorry, they don't do family. It's a sort of adoption thing. And what Jesus does is to say, Abba, Father, to his father. And he brings us into that relationship too. And there was a particular relevance uh, to his first hearers, uh, first readers, I should say, because the law of Moses was given through angels. And it might well have been that they were saying, well, the law of Moses came through angels, so what could be better than that? And here he says, well, the message that comes through the sun is better than that. So the conclusion that we reached last time was to listen up. We must pay more careful attention, therefore, to what we have heard, so that we do not drift away. For if the message, message spoken by angels was binding, how will we escape if we ignore such a great salvation first announced by the Lord? And you remember that illustration of the people who took no notice of the warning sign at Berlin Gap. In huge danger. What fools they are. And here's a message that will save our lives. That message said keep away from the cliff edge at Berlin Gap or Beachy Head or wherever it was. A little wooden sign that would save people's lives. Why didn't they pay attention? And the message that we have is even greater than this. Well, as we come to this one, the starting point is Psalm 8. And you, we had it read, but let's just refer ourselves to Psalm 8. It's quoted there in Hebrews, so I'm going to turn back to the psalm itself. How efficient it would have been if I'd done this before I started the recording. So here is uh, Psalm 8. O Lord, our Lord, 
how majestic is your name in all the earth. You have set your glory above the heavens. From the lips of children and infants you have ordained praise because of your enemies to silence the foe and the avenger. When I consider your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and, your, and, and the stars which you have set in place, what is man that you are mindful of him? So he starts off saying that you've set your glory above the heavens. So those words say heavenly realm and there's a line and above the heavens is where God has put his glory. And I consider the heavens, verse 3, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars that you have set in place. So there's the moon and the stars. And then he goes on to say, what is man that you are mindful of him? So in this great picture of the universe, there's man, um, put in the singular, man. What is man that you care for him, the son of man uh, that you are? What is man that you are mindful of him, the son of man that you care for him? And then the psalm goes on to say, you made him a little lower than the heavenly beings. So a little lower than um, the heavenly beings, the angels. Um, it doesn't use the word for angel, but heavenly beings. Um, and that idea of a little lower, um, or a little while lower. So in, in English, those are two different things. But in uh, certainly in Greek, it, it, you could take the same word and it could mean either of those things. And then he goes on to say, you crowned him with glory and honour. That's in verse 5. And you made him ruler uh, over the works of your hands and put everything under his feet. So there's being crowned with glory and honour. And then everything under his feet and everything is the flocks and the herds, the beasts of the field, the birds of the air, the fish of the sea and all that swim in the paths of the seas. And there's this wonderful picture of humanity uh, sort of halfway between heaven and uh, having jurisdiction over the things of earth. And, and that's such a wonderful thought that the psalmist goes on to say, well, that's David, O Lord, our Lord, isn't this brilliant? Aren't you brilliant? How majestic is your name in all the earth? So there's Psalm 8. And uh, originally, uh, in its original context, it's a statement about man. Uh, uses the uh, word son of Adam. And it doesn't have any obvious time sequence, although, as I said in, in the Greek version, that little could mean for a little while. Uh, and it describes the ideal. It describes the true destiny of Adam's family. Uh, it, it's a wonderful picture. Uh, but, of course, there's something less than ideal about the reality that we now live in. It's not the way things actually are in the sense that all those relationships uh, are dislocated and dysfunctional. So although man uh, is in charge of the earth, what a mess he makes of it uh, with pollution and wars and famine and earthquakes and such things which surely are out of kilter as the virus that we've got now. So although that's a beautiful picture, it's an ideal picture and not really the way things are. So let's turn back now to Hebrews and see how this psalm is picked up by the writer of the Hebrews, to the Hebrews. Now he clearly assumes that what was ideal in the psalm will in fact be fulfilled in some genuine sense. 
And the writer also assumes that there will be a new Adam, a new humanity, a new man. And he assumes, this is his understanding of the way the whole Bible works, that this can't help but be talking about Jesus, the one about whom the whole of the Bible is written. That's how large a view he has of Jesus. So this original vision is fulfilled in Jesus. And as he sees it fulfilled in Jesus, it does have a time sequence. So that idea of being uh, made lower than the angels for a little, uh, he would say that's for a little while he was made lower than the angels. And then he would say, secondly, as a second part of the sequence, he's crowned with glory and honour. And then as a third part of the sequence, everything is put under his feet. So that's what we're going to think about, those three stages of the fulfilment of this that's portrayed in Psalm 8. And then we'll come back to those objections at the end. And all under the heading of considering him, considering Jesus. So let's first of all look at what's said about being made a little lower than the angels or made lower than the angels for a little while. Well, in, in what way was he made lower than the angels? What, what did he come and do? Well, in 2 verse 3, it says that he came and announced salvation. This salvation, which was first announced by the Lord, was confirmed to us by those who heard him. God also testified to it by signs, wonders and various miracles and gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to his will. So first thing is that he came to bring a confirmed message of salvation. That's an important thing. He came, uh, Jesus I'm referring to, Jesus came and he brought his teaching and he came with signs and wonders, feeding the 5,000, crossing the water, many healings, um, uh, indisputed. Even his opponents could not dispute the fact that he did those things. Signs and wonders. Well, it says gifts of the Holy Spirit. The word gifts isn't actually in the original. It says something like distributions or things distributed of the Spirit. So that was a, a very brief description of the life and ministry of Jesus and the, the the confirmation that surrounded that. And then the writer says this was confirmed to us by those who heard him. So these people saw and heard what the Lord did. And this is the role of that first apostolic generation or that apostolic group. They were there, they saw it and heard it and stake their lives on the truth of what they were saying as they pass it on to other people. We cannot but say what we have seen and heard, even if it cost us our lives, we saw it, it's true. And they relayed it, it says, to us, confirmed to us by those who heard him. So I stop to point out this is confirmed, that the nature of the Bible is not to tell us, well, you know, it's a bit iffy, and uh, you just got the leap in the dark on this. Uh, the nature of, uh, of the New Testament 
indeed the whole Bible, but the New Testament specifically, is that this is not fables. It's not dodgy. It's not, well, it might be and it might not be. These people stake their lives on the fact it actually is true. We saw it. You know, a little bit like those whistleblowers who, who saw something take place. I don't know, it went in the... Um, when uh, it was uh, the, the Russian Olympic team had doping uh, irregularities and such, I saw it. Even if it cost me my job, I have to tell you, I saw this. And this is exactly the position of the apostolic testimony. We saw it. It's true. So not a leap in the dark, my friends, but submitting to reliable confirmation. Um, it's true. This has great implications about faith, doesn't it? Uh, believe it because it's true. Here is a good reason to trust this message. So he was made a little lower than the angels, or made lower than the angels for a little while. What else do we know about this? Well, he was made because that's the only way he could suffer death. Chapter 2, verse 9. We see Jesus, who was made a little lower than the angels, uh, who has been crowned with glory and honour, because he suffered death, uh, so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone or for each one. So the cross is part of this picture. The terrible predicament of sin is a human one. Uh, it also affects, well, sorry, it also affects the angelic world, no doubt. Sin affects the angelic world too. But this solution is a specifically human solution. There is no solution here for angels. Verse 16 says it, it, it's not angels he helps, but Abraham's seed, human beings. And it says that he came to taste death. And I think we're to understand that this taste is not just, hmm, hmm, yeah, there's some cinnamon in there, sort of taste. But taste in the full sense, not a little tiny taste, but the full Mm, the full gastronomic experience, and in the case of death, all the bitterness, all the horror, all the revulsion, all the awfulness. He, he, he took the whole experience of that. He tasted death. And when it says for everyone, well, for each one, perhaps would be another way of translating it, not meaning for just generally all people, willy-nilly, but something quite specific. He tasted death. For me, he swallowed the whole thing for me. He drank the bitter cup reserved for me. Huge reason for Christians to be immensely, infinitely grateful to Jesus. He tasted death for each one. Okay, that was number one. Um, made a little lower than the angels, now crowned with glory and honour. That's the second part of the sequence. So I've got an up arrow there and a crown on the little human figure. So it's a past tense in the psalm, um, crowned with glory and honour, verse 7. Um, it's a past tense, something that's happened already. So he's no longer... In, on the cross, he is no longer in the grave. He has been crowned with glory and honour. When he made cleansing for sin, it says at the beginning, he sat down 
at the right hand of the majesty in heaven. So no longer on the cross, no longer in the grave, finished that work. He sat down at the right hand of the majesty in heaven. A finished work, uh, an enthronement, uh, uh, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. That's chapter 1, verse 13. And I think my presentation has neatly omitted that for some reason. So in this scheme of things, the resurrection of Jesus is crucial. If he didn't rise from the dead, if he is in some sense still in the grave, still on the cross, then his identity as the son is left in complete doubt. And the result of his work on the cross is completely inconclusive. We don't know. We're probably still in our sins if, if Christ has not risen from the dead. But if he is risen from the dead, then the work on the cross is complete and acceptable and vindicated by the Heavenly Father. And we can be sure that that process doesn't sh stop short of his being crowned with glory and honour. So he is at the right hand of the majesty on high. He did rise, the apostles saw him. He is not left in condemnation, but vindicated and crowned with glory. So let's come to the third um, part of the sequence. All things put under his feet. Now this too is put as a past tense. Oh, there's my little picture of all things put under his feet. Uh, meaning to say, Christ as supreme head and rule over all the cosmos on behalf of his father. Not a, his father has accepted, he's not, the father has not submitted to Jesus. But on behalf of his father, he rules over all the cosmos. Not a single atom, not a single thought, not a single action, not a single inclination will be anything other than fully glorifying or glorying in his rule. And uh, this, that idea of putting under is uh, referred to um, three times in verse 8. Look at it. Put everything under his feet. That's the quotation. Then he goes on to say, in putting everything under him, God left nothing that is not put under him, not subject to him. Yet at present we do not see everything put under him. So uh, an emphasis on the idea of everything put under his feet. Now, the tense of this. Psalm 8 verse 5 reads as a past tense. Crowned him with glory and honour. Hebrews 2 verse 8. Um, I'm sorry, I said the wrong thing. Psalm 8 verse 5 reads as a past tense. Put everything under his feet. Psalm 2 verse 8 reads as a past tense. Put everything under his feet. But... The verse goes on to say, we don't yet see this. There's nothing left not to be put under his feet, yet at present we do not see everything subject to him. This is something that hasn't yet come to be seen. It hasn't yet come to pass. And we're talking about the future. This is very important, a very important part of the Hebrews' um, argument what he wants to persuade us of and that's why he said in chapter 2 verse 5 
it is not to angels that he has subjected the world to come about which we are speaking. So the future is important. Um, and as he goes on, this is going to become more and more a crucial point that he's making. The writer to the Hebrews is going to say that Christians live by faith. He won't quite say it in the same way as the Apostle Paul does in Romans or Corinthians. But that's his essential point. The life of Christianity is faith in uh, the promises, the person, the work of Jesus. And faith is different to sight. Uh, we believe because we don't yet see. And faith, the faith that the writer of the Hebrews wants to instill into his Christian readers, wants to emphasise in his Christian readers and encourage in his Christian readers and um, insist on in his Christian readers is faith in God's distant future promises about Jesus. Chapter 11, verse 1. Faith is being sure of what we hope for and certain of what we do not see. That's how Christian faith operates. And when the writer to the Hebrews uh, in that chapter 11 is going to talk about faith, he's going to go through his list of the ancients in Scripture. And each time he's going to say something very much like this. They all looked beyond what they could see, beyond their own lifetimes, multiple generations in the future, perhaps the distant future. And that was what their faith was all about. These were all commended for their faith, he says in 1139. Yet none of them received what had been promised. They didn't hold in their hands the promises that God had made to them. And yet they lived by faith. That's how they lived. And this is our exercise of Christian faith too. Very important that we understand this. Our exercise of Christian faith, yes, for sure, we trust the Lord for the job interview. For sure, we trust the Lord for the next doctor's appointment that we're dreading or whatever it is. Yes, for sure, we trust the Lord to provide in this life and to guide us in this life. But that faith is just a subset of the fundamental faith that looks beyond this life. So small letters, yes, for the job interview, but capital letters, yes, for faith in life beyond the grave, faith in the world to come. And truly, nothing less than this is Christian faith. We're looking forward to the day when all things are put under his feet. We don't yet see all things put under his feet, but we see Jesus now crowned with glory and honour uh, because he tasted death uh, for each of his people. So let's come back to this um, conclusion, or let's come back to these objections. What were the objections right at the beginning? Number one was, he's just human. Now, what sort of a saviour is that? Surely we want somebody like Superman, or somebody with a few superpowers, you know, um, Spider-Man. Number two, he suffered. Surely this rules him out as a any sort of... Uh, 
credible saviour? How can disgrace be appropriate for a saviour? And number three, objection. Nothing seems to have changed. The world goes on. Uh, what happens to these promises of new creation and, uh, and so on and so on? So let's just go through those objections, looking at what we've been thinking about uh, in these past few minutes. He's just human. What sort of a saviour is that? Well, you know, I'm, I think that's exactly the sort of saviour we need. We don't want Superman who doesn't understand what it's like to have a cold or a broken heart or a, uh, to be tempted and tested, uh, to be hungry. We want a saviour who is truly and fully human. And that's exactly who he is. One made like us in every way apart from sin. That's who Jesus is. Isn't he a brilliant saviour? Isn't he exactly the saviour that you and I need? Um, oh, the grace of God. That's what it talks about, isn't it? The grace of God who bothered to, to go to the trouble of entering the story of our human race, who came to earth for people like us. That is grace, isn't it? That's amazing love, amazing grace. How can it be that you, my God, should die for me? And this, that he is human, folks, that's not a weakness. That is the genius point of Christianity, isn't it? Uh, a saviour who truly is human. Number two, he suffered. How can such disgrace be appropriate for a saviour? Uh, you know, Jesus stood in the naughty corner. Jesus put in the naughty step. Jesus was uh, spat on and um, mocked. Uh, you know, what sort of way is that? I mean, Donald Trump wouldn't put up with that, would he? Well, look, a human debt was incurred. Divine justice cannot merely condone human sin. Divine justice cannot just excuse transgressions. And divine justice really fundamentally cannot let off sinners. I know it's an attractive idea to say, well, couldn't God just forgive? But if you see what's at stake in him just forgiving, how would the universe know that he actually cared about right and wrong if he just forgave um, sin? It, and why could she just forgive some sinners and not forgive all of them? I mean, can't the idea of God just forgiving sin, just letting people off, is the, the idea of a corrupt judge, not a, a, a faithful judge who does right. And this is exactly what we need, a saviour who could pay our debt. An angel could not pay the debt incurred by humanity. God himself, unincarnated, could not, well, uh, I say could not and presume could not pay that debt. Certainly God has not chosen to do it that way. He came to drink the cup for us. He came to taste death for us. Uh, and what, I mean, that's the sort of saviour we want, isn't it? What? other saviour could we have? Uh, our saviour suffered disgrace, but he did it because he loved us. 
That's totally brilliant, isn't it? I think that's totally brilliant. And number three, uh, this objection, nothing seems to have changed. You know, what happened to the promises of new creation? Well, in many ways, this is the deepest and uh, fairest comment. If the world continues to go on unchanged, then surely this impugns God's judgment and justice and shows that his promises are worthless. But the current state of affairs is temporary. It's ending. Sin goes on, the world goes on, it seems unchanged, but there is this until. Sit at your, my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. That's quoting Psalm 110, isn't it? Now when the until comes, then every enemy will fall beneath his feet. And then, of course, the whole thing is changed. We're no longer in a day of grace. We have come to the final day, the day of judgment, the day when, um, in, the, in the metaphor from the roulette wheel, I've never been and seen a roulette wheel, but I've seen James Bond films where uh, James Bond comes up to the gaming table and the croupier, what that's what it calls, spins the wheel and says, uh, um, what do you say, place your bets. Uh, and then at a certain time, he says, no more bets. That's it. That's how things are fixed now. And when all enemies fall beneath his feet, that'll be the day when there's no more bets, no more chances, no more chance to change your mind. That's it. Now is the day of salvation. Now is the time to put your money on Jesus. Now is the time to embrace the promises of salvation. And uh, the writer to the Hebrews is going to uh, push this button really hard. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. Um, today is the day to trust him. He's a brilliant saviour. Trust him. So let's come back to that uh, point of uh, application that was made at the beginning of chapter 2. We must pay more careful attention, therefore, to what we have heard, so that we do not drift away. How will we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? And folks, if you haven't put your faith in the Lord Jesus, now's the time to do it. And if you were thinking that you're beginning to be a bit unimpressed by him, if you are beginning to think the Christian life is probably not worth living, if you are beginning to think Oh, there are so many objections to Christianity. I think I'll just let it slip and let it go. Think again, because Jesus Christ is the greatest, most brilliant saviour. And we cannot afford to harden our hearts. We cannot afford to drift away from such a great salvation and such a great saviour. So we've heard God's word and we continue to pray that we'll be able to fix our eyes on Jesus and consider him and live for him. I'm going to close with a prayer and after this we're going to sing about uh, a song which talks about waiting for everything to be put under his feet, rejoicing in hope we wait for our king. 
So let us pray. May the God of peace, who through the blood of the eternal covenant brought back from the dead our Lord Jesus, that great shepherd of the sheep, equip you with everything good for doing his will, and may he work in us what is pleasing to him through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory for ever and ever. Amen. Amen. Rejoicing in hope, we wait for our King. That's what we're going to sing. That's it from me. Bye bye for now and hope to see you soon. Bye now. Rejoicing in
Jesus, our King. 